Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. Let's get started. We're in a study, fifth week of our study on Baptist Covenant Theology, which is a a study of uh, the framework of God's um, unfolding work in redemptive history. And today we're going to be talking about the New Covenant. So we really have, in a sense, finally arrived at the, the pinnacle of God's covenant dealings with His people. And just as a reminder of where, where we've been, I've had this diagram that I've used um, uh, throughout the class so far that um, describes what we're doing. We call it um, Baptist covenant theology to distinguish it from uh, what is usually associated with pedo-Baptist covenant theology, and that is mostly found in uh, Presbyterian and, and Reformed worlds um, that supports um, uh, their view of the church and their view of, of baptism, which includes infant baptism. But uh, we have a, a slightly different approach, much of which is very similar, and, and, and there's a, a great deal of mutual appreciation in our uh, upholding the concepts of covenant theology, and yet there are some differences. So that puts you on notice that we're taking a little different approach than that, if you're familiar with it. And confessional just reminds us that it's not something that I made up. It's something that's found in our confession of faith, which is the 1689 uh, baptism. Uh, first uh, uh, adopted in 1677, but finally uh, published in 1689 when the political situation allowed that. So let me just give you a brief overview of what we've been talking about. So basically what we're saying is that God has revealed his dealings with mankind in terms of covenants. Um, if we begin with, uh, over there on the left, you see the covenant of works, God formed a covenant with Adam. He didn't use that term, but we find all the elements of a covenant in there. Uh, and, and he did that. He formed that covenant with Adam on behalf of all mankind. Adam was tested uh, by his, uh, his obedience or his, whether he would obey the command to not to eat from the, the particular tree that God had designated. Uh, he failed that test. He ate from the tree. And as a result, uh, he, he brought a curse upon himself and all mankind. All mankind are, are uh, condemned in Adam. And, uh, and so he was cast out of the garden. And then from that point on, God has been uh, dealing with humanity through a, a various covenants and promises that point forward to, to covenant promises, um, beginning even with the, um, the promise that uh, his... That his seed would, would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. So um, what we see, uh, the structure that we're looking at, is, that we, I believe is taught in Scripture, is that there are basically two covenants beyond the covenant of works. There are two covenants revealed in Scripture, the new covenant and the old covenant. In fact, the word testament is just another, as a synonym for covenant. And as you know, the Bible is uh, composed of two testaments, right? The Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament or New Covenant. Um, it's not that the, the entire Old Testament is only about the Old Covenant, but that's kind of the bulk of the, 
of the attention of what it's about. And same thing, the New Testament is, is a, a, an exposition of the, of the New Covenant. So uh, what we're saying here is that, that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are different. We're going to see that more clearly this week, finally. Um, we're going to see that in the Old Covenant, it was a very different covenant from the, the New Covenant. had a very different basis, different promises, different purposes and everything. And yet, in the middle of all that, the Old Covenant itself was revealing and pointing forward to the New Covenant. Okay? Now, why is this important? Well, again, I'm holding a, a Bible here. Um, there is a very big difference between the Old Testament and the New You've probably noticed that. The Old Testament's harder to understand than the New Testament is. And it's harder sometimes to know what of, of it applies to us and how it applies to us. But also, I put a little sheet of paper in there. You probably also know that the, the bulk of our Bibles is composed of the, the Old Testament. So it's really important that we understand how the Old Testament relates to the New it's really important to be able to read that properly and to understand it and not miss out on three quarters of the revelation God has given to us in his word. So this is very important. And there are differences of opinions about how those two covenants are to relate together. In fact, there are such differences that the Jews had a, had a particular view of the old covenant. Of course, they didn't have the new covenant yet, but they had such a view of the old covenant that um, basically... Uh, said it was so mis so wrong, so misunderstood that they missed salvation because of it. They missed the Savior. They missed Christ. So it is very important that we understand a, a, the proper relationship between the Old and the New Covenant so that we can read our Bibles better. And then we're going to talk about a couple of other specifics near the end of the implications of this as, as we go along. So um, this isn't easy. I'll just tell you that right off, um, but it's worth it. It's worth it to study it, and it's worth it to wrestle through it. And um, I'm trying to make it as, as uh, uh, plain as I can within my limited abilities, but um, there's going to be a certain level of difficulty to it that I, that I just can't get around. Um, and, um, and, and some of that's my inability, and some of that's just because God made it more difficult than, than uh, you might choose for it to be. And that's okay. It's a, it's a, it can be a lifelong study. We won't have all our questions answered right here in the next 45 minutes or in this eight-week study. <clears throat> okay, so let's uh, ask God to, to bless us and, and help us in this study. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you and, and ask that you would, you would give us grace and help and that your spirit would would. Uh, shine a light on your word that we might understand it more clearly, that we might be able to read all of your word and, and understand the, what it means for us in our day and in our context and in this present age. And we ask, Father, that especially we would understand and, and see the glory of the work of Christ and the way you have built up to this point in history, throughout history, and have exalted the work of Christ, and may that be exalted in our own hearts and minds as we study this, this subject today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. And kind of simultaneously, we're going to do, look at two things. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. 
And then in also Hebrews 31, verses 31 to 34, because that whole section is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is basically about the superiority of Christ to all other things, particularly other things in, in the Old Covenant. Okay, so this is where uh, the writer of Hebrews comes to a particular discussion of the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, um, beginning in verse 6, but when I get to verse 8 where it starts, where it, says, it starts a quote and it says, Behold, I want you to look up there and see how similar it is. Okay? I actually haven't compared it word for word, so you, may, you can tell me whether it's identical or not. It, it, it may not be. But um, anyway, that's the quote from Jeremiah, and we'll see just how close it is. Okay, Hebrews 8, beginning verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. How similar were they? <laughs> okay. All right. So we see he's quoting from that passage. And, and so I wanted you to see that, that this is not just New Covenant revelation, but this is Old Covenant revelation as well. The Old Covenant itself, or in, in the Old Covenant scriptures, the New Covenant is prophesied and promised. Okay? The Old Covenant itself recognized that it wasn't sufficient, that it, that it wasn't going to continue, that something better was coming. Okay? So let's make sure we understand what is the Old Covenant being referred to here according to this, to this passage. Look at, look at verse 9. What, what covenant is he referring to specifically? Okay, it's the covenant that was made with Moses. It's the covenant we studied specifically last week when it says that God took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Then he made a covenant with them, remember? And so, so he's referring specifically to the, to the covenant that God made with Moses. But we saw last week that the, the covenant God made with Moses was really a filling up of the physical covenant that God made with Abraham, particularly the one, the, the covenant that was represented by um, the covenant of circumcision. We saw, if we go on back one step, that the covenant with Abraham was actually two covenants in one. Galatians 4 makes it uh, uh, 
crystal clear that there were really two covenants in one. It says there were two covenants. And, and basically, Isaac represents, uh, and, and allegorically, Isaac represents one of them, and Ishmael represents the other. One is a covenant of promise, uh, represented by the, the child of promise, who was uh, born miraculously. And the other one is the, uh, the covenant of the, the natural or, or physical posterity that is represented by Ishmael, who was born not by any kind of miracle, but by just an ordinary um, act of a man and a woman. So, um, so we see that very clearly stated. So um, the author of Hebrews refers to the Old Covenant in its highest form, that is the Mosaic Covenant, and yet remember, just keep in mind that the, that the Old Covenant existed in a less developed form before that. So it refers to the conditional covenant that did not promise salvation or enable obedience. Okay, that's the contrast that's being made here, and we'll see that more clearly. So when it talks about the, the covenant with Moses, or the, the old covenant, it's thinking of a conditional covenant, one where, as we saw last week, that the people said, all that you've said we will do, all that God has said we will do. We're taking on these conditions. We're going to do this. We, we have to obey the covenant conditions. It was a conditional covenant. Um, it did not promise salvation in itself, although the covenant with Moses foreshadowed salvation through the sacrifices and so forth. It didn't, it didn't provide salvation. And it also didn't enable obedience. Okay? So what was wrong with the old covenant? We kind of answered that a little bit already. Because um, it says if that, in verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, okay, it's kind of an odd way of saying it because it makes it sound like that there was something wrong with something God set up. The first covenant was, had a fault in it. Okay? But then you go on and as you read what he's trying to say here, that what he's really communicating is it, wasn't, it didn't have a, a, a problem with it or a flaw in terms of God's purposes. But it had a flaw if you're thinking of it as something that would produce obedience in the people of God. It couldn't do that. It wouldn't do it. So it was, unable, it was actually unable to secure salvation or obedience. Um, and that was by God's design. Okay? So it was not like it, God messed up or anything. The flaw was actually with them. Look in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold. And then he goes on to talk about the new covenant. So, so the, the problem was something that needed to be addressed about them, not about the covenant per se. It was intended by God from the beginning to highlight their inability. Okay, so then, now we're going to get to really what is the, the crucial part of, of this whole class here. And that is to, to compare and contrast the old and the new covenants. Okay, uh, the new covenant is not merely a refurbished covenant. Now, I'm, that sounds like a big word, but I know everybody knows what that means because if you shopped on Amazon, you'll see you always have a choice between you can get a new tablet or you can get a refurbished tablet or just plain used. Okay, Re refurbished means that they, you know, they wipe the, the fingerprints off of it or something and they call it refurbished. So it looks newer than just a plain old ordinary used one, okay? So this is not a refurbished covenant. Um, it is also not a new administration of the same 
uh, continuing covenant of grace, which is the formulation used by um, uh, pedobaptists in, in the more standard uh, covenant theology. Okay? Uh, it, is, it is actually different in substance. It is a different covenant. It's different in its essence. So how are they different? I want you to look at the passage that we're, that we're studying here. And I want you to tell me, point out three areas that are contrasted. Not, don't tell me what's different about them yet, but just tell me what the, what the three areas are. Something that I didn't catch what you're saying. Um, well, yeah, I, I think in, in a sense that's true, but in the terms in which it's delivered, it's not, because it still says it's made with Israel and Judah. Okay, so I, I don't see that as a contrast. In. Okay, where do you see that? Okay, you looked in the wrong place. All right. Um, no, actually, I'm just kidding you. But I want to, that's true. That's true. But I want to look specifically in the part that's the, the quote from Jeremiah 31. Okay. The, the state of the law or the place of the law is one of those. Okay. So there you go. Place of the law. All right. What was? Okay. Who knows God? What the what relationship to God in the, in the two covenants, okay? It talks about the relationship to God. And what else? Forgiveness of sins, okay? Was there forgiveness of sins, okay? So now let's look and look at the contrast. Now, the contrast is not so much, it doesn't tell you what the old covenant isn't. It just tell you what, tells you what the new covenant is, which implies a contrast because notice that he says, in verse 9, this covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And then he goes on to specifically talk about what it's like. Well, when he talks about what it's like, that by implication that means that the other covenant was not like that. This one's going to be different in these ways. Okay? So the first thing is that the contrast is that the old covenant was written on tablets of stone. Notice that he says, I'm going to write... Um, my law, I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the location of the law in the new covenant is the mind and the heart. Okay. Second thing is in terms of the relationship to, to God. Um, it says that they're all going to know God from the least to the greatest. In fact, so much so that you don't have to tell people know God in the new covenant. Because everyone in the covenant knows God. Everyone. Where, so in the Old Covenant, not all knew God, but in the New Covenant, all know God. Okay? And then the third thing is in terms of the forgiveness of sins. Um, in the Old Covenant, not all were forgiven. In fact, none were forgiven on the basis of that covenant. That covenant was unable, as Hebrews has already abundantly made clear, not, the Old Covenant could not do away with sins. Okay? But in the New Covenant... All in the covenant are forgiven. Okay, so we see this very sharp contrast between the old and the new. Mm -hmm. Clarify the, what you mean by not all knew God versus all knew God. 
That's right. Uh, the covenant was made with the nation of Israel. So they were all in covenant with God. Okay? And yet not all of them actually knew God in a saving way. Okay? They might have known about God, but they didn't know God in a, in a saving way. Whereas in the new covenant, everyone in the covenant knows God. Okay? All right? Other questions? Now I'm going to kind of unpack these three things. Um, here. Um, so first of all, the, uh, the law of, and, and the law as represented by the Mosaic law as just an external revelation had no power to bring about obedience. And that scripture says that over and over again. It only instructed, but it did not enable. It just informed, but it didn't move anybody. It didn't help. It didn't enable. Uh, Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 7.5 says, In fact, it could, the, the giving of the law without enabling anything actually made things worse in terms of obedience. Romans 7, 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, as soon as you know that something was wrong, you wanted to do it. Ever had that experience? So, what this tells us is that the truth, knowing the truth about our duty, and even knowing truth about God's mercy just applied to our ears, cannot enable love for God or steadfast obedience. John Owen says, No external administration of a covenant, even of God's own making, no obligation of mercy on the minds of men can enable them to steadfastness in covenant obedience without an effectual influence of grace from and by Jesus Christ. So all the good teaching in the world and all the best examples of obedience that you'll ever see will do nothing to produce heart obedience unless we receive God's grace in Christ with an empty hand. It just won't happen. Okay? So this is one of the things that, we're, that, are, that is taught here. Now, just to make sure we don't misunderstand... The, the new covenant does not make God's law irrelevant. Jesus did not abolish the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Now, some laws have come to an end because their, their role was temporary and, and they were fulfilled. But the essence of the law continued on. The essence of the law continued on. So if you think about the passage, and I, got, I, need, I need a bigger desk up here. I got to see my passage. Um, all right. So look at what the passage is saying. What, what law is being referred to in this word picture? Do you see it? There's a, there's a word picture being painted here. Placed the law in their minds, wrote the law on their hearts. Can you think of a law that was written very uh, dramatically and placed somewhere? Okay, 
wasn't it the Ten Commandments that God wrote on tablets of stone with his finger? And then the, the law, the tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So the, Jeremiah originally, and then the author of Hebrews, is, is painting this picture for us to remind us of the law, that is the Ten Commandments, by saying this, this same law, this same fundamental law, is, it's not that you're going to just ignore that law. It's not irrelevant in the New Covenant, but you're going to love that law. It's going to be written on your heart, and it's going to be placed in your mind. Did I get the right uh, order there? Pla yeah, placed in your mind, put in your minds. So there's an internal work in terms of our, our um, attitude toward the law. Instead of just being presented as information, which we rebel at, it's that our hearts are actually changed toward the law. Okay, so um, third thing to notice is that in the Old Covenant, God was a God to unbelieving Israel. He says that he's going to be a God to them, okay? So let me just make it clear that it, it, he was a God to them in, in the Old Covenant. But to those who didn't believe, he was only a God to them in the sense of fulfilling for them the physical promises of giving them a land and giving them uh, an offspring of Abraham. Okay? Now, for, for those that were believing Israel within Israel, God was a God to them in a more intimate way, just as he is to us. That is, they knew him, okay? but not to unbelieving Israel. In the New Covenant, however, we, do, we all know God. We have a relationship with God. Now, let me just point out one thing that might be a bit puzzling here. It says that they will no longer teach each other. Okay? That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, here, here I am teaching. What am I doing? It's a new covenant, and I'm teaching. Am I violating this passage? Um, well, no. That would contradict everything else that the, the New Testament teaches about teaching. Um, and so that can't be, be what, he's, what he's talking about. Let me suggest a couple of things that, that's being referred to here because it's, it's trying to reinforce the same point, that everyone in the New Covenant knows God. Remember how in the Old Covenant, the gospel was only uh, revealed in a very hidden, uh, shadowy, typical way. It wasn't nearly as clear as it is to us, not even remotely as clear as it is to us. And so... In order to see God and to see his grace, it would have been common for people to have to struggle through that revelation to see that. They would have had to encourage each other, look, you can see God in these sacrifices. You can see God here. Know God through these things. It would have been a, a struggle and a difficulty to, to work through the, the veiled, uh, hidden revelation of God in the Old Covenant to see his grace and mercy being offered and to see that you can know God. It required diligence and effort. But now, um, just the smallest glimpses of the gospel are like the noonday sun compared to what they were seeing of the gospel in the old covenant. We have the full light of the gospel now. And so we don't need to say, struggle through to know God, to see God in the gospel, to see him offered. It's plain as day. Um, as, as, a, as was said about John the Baptist, even the, even the least in the kingdom of heaven was greater than him. They knew far more of God than even John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the prophets.
Okay, so, but also I think we can say that, that specifically there's no need to call people to know God who already know him. If everyone in the new covenant knows God, there's no reason to say you, you need to know God because they already know God. Okay, so, so we have that uh, reinforcing the point as well. This reminds us that in the New Covenant, we're, we're given the privilege of knowing God, which is the highest possible blessing that we could ever have in anything. I mean, if somebody came to you and said, you know, you just won $10 million in the lottery, uh, I mean, you know, you can think, wow, I can't imagine anything greater than that. That's nothing compared to what is being promised here, what being announced here in the New Covenant, to know God. Um, Owen says, to know God as he is revealed in Christ is the highest privilege of which in this life we can be made partakers. For this is life eternal, that we may know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I think about when Philip said, said to Jesus, Lord, um, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And I guess he had kind of gotten to know Jesus well enough, he had finally gotten up the nerve to ask for something big. <laughs> and so he said, just, just show us the Father. Uh, he, on, the, on the positive side, he had figured out the right thing to ask for. And if you're going to ask for something, ask to see the Father. Ask to know God. Of course, Jesus had to teach him that if you know me, you know the Father. Right? But at least Philip knew what to ask for. Um, J.I. Packer uh, has a helpful comment about this. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So, we, so it is not irrelevant to hear teaching about God, but that ought to be not just information, but it ought to be something that we respond to and it's a matter for praise. It's turned back to praise and admiration of God. Uh, John Piper says, Long looking with admiration produces change. From your heroes, you pick up mannerisms and phrases and tones of voice and facial expressions and habits and demeanors and convictions and beliefs. The more admirable the hero is and the more intense your admiration is, the more profound will be your transformation. In the case of Jesus, he is infinitely admirable. And our admiration rises to the most absolute worship. Therefore, when we behold him as we should, the change is profound. So this ought to encourage us in our knowledge of God. To go on in our knowledge of God and to stir up that knowledge and to embrace it and appreciate it. But also, um, in not, when we are in covenant with God in the new covenant, it's not just that we individually know God, but we collectively know God. In other words, I have the privilege of being in covenant with you, in, along, along with you and in God, um, and, and to know, I get to know you, and you know God. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you think about it. Um, you know the guy that... Um, that uh, I guess it was a year or so ago, 
um, was doing one of these basketball shooting th uh, competitions at halftime, and he, he had made all the baskets and finally had to make a half-court shot, and he was too far away from the half-court to get back in time to, um, to, to make the shot. So he just turned around from this side and shot to the other goal, and he made it and won $10,000, something like that, $5,000. Well, that guy is one of Jackson's roommates. So isn't that awesome? Jackson gets to know that guy. You know, he's like famous for five minutes, right? So, um, so you know, that, that was kind of cool. He's, that's one of his roommates. And, uh, but, you know, that's nothing compared to saying, I, I know the guy that made that shot and won $5,000. I know God. And I know the guy. I mean, I can say, my, my son's rooming with that guy. You know, it's my privilege to be able to brag about that. Um, but that's nothing compared to saying, I know a whole bunch of people who know the living God, and we live together. We have a life together in God. What, a, what an amazing privilege that is. Well, then the third thing in the, in the table here is forgiveness of sins. All in the covenant are forgiven. And this is the basis of all the other blessings. The, the word here in verse... Um, Let's see, where, let me find it. It's in there more than once. Um, verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The word for, we're on a roll with Greek here, so I'm going to throw out a Greek word. The word is hati, which is a, there's more than one word for for in Greek, but this word is a for meaning causal. This is for, this is the reason why, okay? Kind of, it's a causal for. And it means, it indicates that forgiveness is the basis and the cause of these other two things. Because we're forgiven, we can know God. We can draw near to Him. Because we're forgiven, our hearts can be changed toward God's law. So, think about the glory of, the, of this covenant. The, the old covenant demonstrated that full obedience is impossible. We'll never earn life that way, but we have life in the new covenant. And also God removes the barrier uh, that keeps him from a relationship with us by forgiving us of our sins. It's no longer a barrier. He can draw near to us because of forgiveness of sins. And and he removes the barrier that keeps us from a relationship with him because we no longer hate him and his character and his law. He's changed our attitude toward his law so we can uh, uh, draw near to him with, uh, and love him. We have been given, uh, our, take, our heart of disobedience has been removed and we've been given uh, a heart of obedience. And so we are enabled then to know God. So, just be reminded that doing is un unable to give us covenant blessings. All we can do is receive them as a gift by faith. You might look at this and go, oh, this all sounds good, but how do you get into this covenant? It says Israel and Judah. Well, um, he's making the larger case that th this isn't, it was given to Israel and Judah or revealed to them because they were the people of God at that time when it was revealed. But he's He's saying the new covenant is broader than that. But who gets in? Who gets in? Well, 
It's not that the people that work really hard and obey a lot get in, right? That's it's the very opposite of what he's saying. He's saying it's not a conditional covenant. It's not that you have to fulfill the conditions. I'm fulfilling the conditions. So then, if that's the case, how do you get in? It's in a sense by saying, I, I lay down the conditions. I'm not going to, to fulfill the conditions. I'm, I, I admit I'm unable. I'm, I'm not able, but I trust you to fulfill the conditions. And so, so I receive it simply by faith. That's an unconditional response, okay, is I receive it by faith. I, I cannot bring anything to the table and simply trust you. Okay, that is receiving it by, by faith. That is how we are receiving it. And that's how we become part of the covenant. And even that is a gift. The ability to receive this by faith is a gift. All right, so then how did God administer his grace to old covenant believers? This is an important question because we, it's obvious that, oh, that there were Many people saved in the Old Covenant. Many people knew God in the Old Covenant. But I've been saying all along that the Old Covenant doesn't save people. So how, how did this happen? Well, even Old Covenant believers were saved by virtue of the New Covenant. Okay? The, uh, and let me just bring you back to our diagram here. They, the, the Old Covenant, in various ways, pointed forward to and revealed the new covenant. So they couldn't be saved because of the old covenant. It didn't offer grace. It didn't offer the, these things. But the new covenant did. And so they looked forward in faith to the fulfillment of God's promises. And in a sense, God looked forward. Of course, God's not in time. But, but God looked forward in forbearance to the actual removal of their sins in Christ. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, there was no sacrifice that could take away Abraham's sin or Moses' sin or anybody's sin in the Old Testament until Christ came along. So how is he offering forgiveness? Well, it's kind of like saying, uh, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I really need $5,000. need it badly. And I say, yeah, you do need it badly. I don't have $5,000. But I do have good credit with the bank. So let me go get a loan for you. And, I, and so I go get a loan. I give them $5,000. But I can't do that ethically unless I'm able and ultimately do pay the money back to the bank, right? So it's, it's I can... I, because I have good credit, I can, I can lend them the money, but ultimately I can't do that on, on any basis other than the idea that I'm going to pay it back. Okay? So God was able to do that, and that's what he did. And then Hebrews 11.39 says, And all these, these old covenant believers that have been reviewed through Hebrews 11, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So in a sense, there was, there was a, a, a waiting for what was to be received until it was uh, ultimately um, taken care of in Christ and provided in Christ. So now, with this 
uh, table in mind, I want to just make it clear that the old and the new covenants were fundamentally different covenants. Okay? Totally different basis. Um, totally different promises. Um, even, even different in terms of duration. The old covenant was temporary. It says it's passing away. It's ready to vanish away. It says it was, has a fault. The new covenant has no fault. And he says it's, uh, um, it was being uh, done away because of this new covenant. So very, very different covenants. So I'm going to take issue with this particular diagram, which I've, excuse me, which I mentioned last time. And that is this is a standard uh, way of relating the old and new covenants. And that is it says that the old covenant and the new covenant are just administrations or implementations of the covenant of grace. And the problem with that is that it makes the old covenant and the new covenant too similar. That they both are the covenant of grace just with some little bit different trappings on the outside. And, and yet we see such a sharp contrast made. And we can't say that these two are just two implementations of the same covenant when, they're, when such a sharp contrast is made between them in Scripture. That they are two different covenants with different bases. So, um, anyway, we're going to get into this more next week, and, uh, and I just want to, again, just kind of hit, hit on, touch on that um, as an observation based on what we're seeing here about how different these two covenants are. Okay? So, um, yeah, so let me go back to that one. Um, all right, so let me just mention two important implications of what we've seen about the arrival of the new covenant. The first one is that it defines the nature of the church. It defines the nature of the church. It's very different from the old covenant. In the old covenant, the old covenant was made with people who were an explicitly mixed group of believers and unbelievers. It wasn't like God thought they were believers and found out later that they were rebellious people. Okay, they were, he knew who he was making a covenant with to begin with. Deuteronomy 9, 6 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So from the day they came out of Egypt, that was before the covenant was formally enacted. He knew that they were rebellious people. These were not uh, regenerate, uh, believing um, people whose hearts belonged to the Lord. Okay? Not, at least not all of them. Some were and some weren't. Okay? But the new covenant is very clearly made with believers. The people who have new hearts, the people who know God, the people whose sins are forgiven, who are they? Those are believers, right? Um, and that is, what, that is how the church ought to be composed. That's the, that's the definition of the church in the new covenant. Um, for, and we see the, the church churches referred to that way um, throughout Scripture. Just one example, 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, saints is just another word, word for sanctified ones or holy ones, set apart, so that's a covenant term, set apart, made separate from others in the, in the covenant sense, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. These are believers. These are people who know the Lord. This is what defines the church. Okay. Second of all, it defines the character of our worship. Old covenant worship, or old covenant was, was not like the new covenant, according to the passage we've been studying. It's not like it. Um, not everyone... Uh, in it knew the Lord. Um, the, it was an outward and, and typical and physical kind of covenant. It had a different basis in terms of promises. It says Jesus was a mediator of a covenant with better promises. There were different promises in the old covenant. It could not bring obedience, and it had a temporary purpose. And so for all these reasons, um, old covenant worship was entirely abolished. It does not carry over in any respect into the New Covenant. So if you look at certain Old Covenant practices, you say, I kind of like, I think I'd like to borrow that. I'd, I'd like to borrow, um, you know, the, the ritual of circumcision, or I'd like to borrow burning incense, or uh, dressing up in special holy garments like they did in the Old Covenant, or spectator worship where the priests do everything and everybody else sits and watches the priests do, do that, or special buildings and locations like the temple, or, or ritualistic service. All these things are entirely done away with in the New Covenant, and they are inappropriate for New Covenant worship. New Covenant worship is spiritual. It is empowered by the Spirit, and it is truth, spirit and truth. It is focused on the light of the work of Christ in the noonday light of the New Covenant. It is offered by faith by those whose hearts, are chained, whose hearts are changed, whose sins are forgiven, and who know God. So, those are, that's plenty for us to chew on, isn't it? Um, so, we're going to stop there. And again, I always go fill it up to the max and then some. So, we don't really have time for questions, but I'll be glad to hang around. Um, next week, we're going to start with uh, three weeks of looking at basically the implications of this for three different areas. Uh, we're going to look at the specific issue of infant baptism next week, and then we're going to talk about um, dispensationalism in two weeks and cov new covenant theology, which is kind of a rising uh, thing of interest um, among uh, Baptists um, in three weeks. And so then we'll be done. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the, the way that you have revealed and unfolded your redemption to us. Uh, it is sometimes difficult to understand, difficult to put it all together and see all the threads and pieces as they're woven together. And yet, Father, um, you, you are, you're bigger than we are and you're wiser than we are. And we marvel as we see how all these things things that seem to be running in different directions come together in Christ. And I ask, Father, that you would help us not to be discouraged uh, by our struggle to, to understand and put it together, but, be, but just be amazed and awed 
by your provision for us. I ask, Father, that you would help us to understand some of the implications of these things so that we can uh, read our Bibles with more profit and that we could understand how these things play out in the life of our church and and, and in our individual lives as well. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the new covenant in his blood. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Antelou Drive.